0: Listener Supported, WNYC Studios.
1: This is all of it on WNYC. I'm Allison Stewart. All this week, we've been looking back at some of the big moments in culture and our favorite interviews about those moments. Today, on this last day of the year, I chose four conversations that touch on the myriad of feelings about 2021. Progress, frustration, persistence, exhaustion, resilience, remembrance, and what it means to survive in New York City. This hour, a look at the making of musical theater and what it can tell us about how to carry on, even in hard times. First up, Lin-Manuel Miranda on his directorial debut, Tick, Tick, Boom. It's a meta musical film in so many ways and a love letter to theater and New York City, something we could use right now. Tick, Tick, Boom is a musical about a young composer who is trying to write a musical about a young composer. That composer, Jonathan Larson, would go on to change the face of musicals with Rent so that when another young composer with ideas about expanding musical theater by creating a hip hop ode to a founding father, became hugely successful, he would make his film directorial debut, making the film about that original composer. Hamilton's Lin-Manuel Miranda joined us when Tick Tick Boom was first released. Since then, it has been nominated for two Golden Globe Awards, and star Andrew Garfield is a strong bet for the best actor nod at the Oscars. Here's Garfield in the film as Jonathan Larson when he is confronted by his girlfriend about not being present and being obsessed with, you know, composing.
0: AND NOW, LADIES AND GENTLEMEN, WE PRESENT YOU WITH SCENES FROM A MODERN ROMANCE, AS TOLD IN SONG. I'M SORRY. I'M
1: SORRY. I'M NOT ALLOWED TO TALK ABOUT MY NEEDS. What needs? Did I say that? You didn't have to say it. It's implied. How is it implied? You're the artist and I'm the girlfriend. That's how you feel, right? I feel
0: bad that you feel bad about me feeling bad about you feeling bad about what I said about. What you said about me not being able to share a feeling.
1: Can we talk about this later, please? When, Jonathan? When is later? Not tonight. Here's our conversation with Lin-Manuel Miranda about Tick, Tick, Boom from November 2021. So the legend goes, you saw Rent on your 17th birthday. What was it about that show that clicked for you that made you think, that is what I'm going to do?
0: It was was everything. First of all, I, I was aware of the tragic irony of Jonathan not living to see the success of the show. I was curious to see it. My high school girlfriend got us tickets for my 17th birthday, that's January 16th, 1997. Um, I'm in the back row of the mezzanine of the Nederlander Theater. It was the most contemporary score I'd ever heard. It was the first one that felt like the New York I actually live in. Uh, not, um, it's not on the town, it's not West Side Story, it's not Chorus Line. Um, it was the most diverse cast I'd ever seen on Broadway. Um, there's a very uh, incredible echo between that that beautiful mosaic of humanity on stage in Seasons of Love and the cast of Hamilton singing the word time uh, all those years later uh, downstage center. Um, and it it spoke to my concerns. It felt homemade. You know, mm-hmm. there were Bustelo references and Sondheim and Kurosawa references. And it felt it was the show that made me go from just loving musicals but thinking they were made by other people and there was no way in to having the audacity to think I could write one someday.
1: Oh, it sounds like it had like, had meaning in your life. Seeing that.
0: enormous meaning, and yeah, and and just you know the the two main characters of that show want to make movies and write songs, and that's all I've ever wanted to do. <laughs> so it just it just felt it really felt like a, a personal attack, as the kids say.
1: So as I mentioned in the intro, you played Jonathan Larson at City Center in the production of Tick, Tick, Boom. And as you start to look back on it and reflect on this time, what about that experience informed your work directing this film?
0: Well, it's interesting. I was at a very different crossroads when I was lucky enough to to play Jonathan in that production than Jonathan is in the show. Um, I've had success uh, on Broadway, but mm-hmm. it was pretty far in the rear view. I was super pregnant with Hamilton, which would start rehearsals four months later. Mm-hmm. My wife was super pregnant with our first child. Um, my co-stars were my my co-lead from my last show, Karen Olivo, and my co-lead from my next show, Leslie Odom Jr., and... Um, everything was kind of in a limbo it was one of those things where it's like it was one of those feelings in your life where you blow on the dice it's going to go one way uh or a different way and um but, but my main takeaway from from that production was stepping from backstage to the post-show reception and seeing that all of the friends and family in Jonathan's life were still around and mm-hmm. keeping his memory alive. And their relationship to this material was much purer and more uncomplicated than their relationship to Rent, which is also inextricably bound up in his, his early passing and tragic passing. And mm-hmm. they had to make a lot of really tough decisions in the wake of the success John always wanted but didn't live to see. Whereas when Tick-Tick Boom is playing, John's back. He's back for the 90 minutes that that show was being put on. And, and I knew that I would be able to lean on them as a resource as we did research for this film. Um, cause, you know, you have a lot more details in a movie. Uh-huh. Our, our responsibility is not just to Jonathan's score, but New York in 1990, New York amidst, amidst the AIDS epidemic. Um, at, you know, this time that I lived through as a child and John lived through as, as an artist downtown.
1: Yeah, the film really gets this Is this love letter to this particular moment and this particular being young and creative in New York in the 80s and the 90s. I mean, you really, you lived through it, I lived through it, you really got it. The moon dance diner, calling your friends from pay phones, uh, walls of cassettes, missing your friends who've passed away, that mask desktop uh, in, the, in, the, <laughs> in his apartment. Um, what was it that you wanted to capture about this time? that was really important, especially for young creative folks downtown?
0: Well, I, you know, Jonathan was someone who wrote as if he heard the ticking clock of mortality even before, you know, we knew that, you know, he had un- undiagnosed complications from Marfan syndrome. That was something that he did not know at the time he was writing this. He was just writing this show. You know, you know in retrospect, it seems prophetic. Um, I feel like I'm running out of time and I've just spent my 20s writing a musical that no one wants to produce. Um, and, and I thought that, you know, I remember that sort of post-Koch, pre-Giuliani time very well. I'm, I'm 10 years old at this time. Mm-hmm. I remember being the kid sitting in the anteroom at funerals for friends of the family who had passed away from HIV and AIDS. Um, and I, you know, I, I remember you know, falling in love with The Little Mermaid as a kid and then finding out that the lyricist of that would pass away two Mm. years later, Um, uh, you know, Howard Ashman. We lost a generation of artists. We lost a generation to this uh, disease. And so that this is the thing, this is sort of, a pandemic but only a few people are talking about it and it's not being talked about enough and activists are trying to get um you know the government and the world to pay attention um and and john is, is trying it is, is losing friends uh mm. to this disease and trying you know it, it gave a greater context to the urgency that would fuel rent and and the the urgency to create in general
1: my guest, Lin Manuel Miranda, we're talking about Tick Tick Boom, which drops on Netflix on Friday. It's also in select theaters if you feel comfortable going to the theater. So, the film, I want to ask you about some of your directorial choices. The film jumps between scenes from Jonathan's life and scenes from Jonathan on stage performing the original version of, of Tick Tick Boom. So, what did this framing afford you creatively and then practically?
0: Um- well, it just felt like I could get more bites of the apple that way. Um, you know, first of all, um, there's no t- definitive version of Tick, Tick, Boom. It was a series of rock monologues that he performed in different venues. That one never got produced either. And then after his passing, um, director Scott Schwartz and uh, playwright David Auburn reconfigured it into a three-person show. And and my my you know I, I believe that with film because it's more realistic. You know, you walk into a, a, a theater, you're, you're expecting to see them burst into song. It, right. It's kind of part of the convention. Uh, but, but when you're there and the detail and the camera's that close up, you've got to really kind of create a contract with the audience. And I just, my, my thesis was, As soon as he puts his hands on the piano, we are in Jonathan Larson's world, and that can be a subjective uh, place, but it's also um, like real life, but better, because people can burst into song uh, at any given moment, and it's Jonathan's um, kind of incredible perspective on the world, and so it afforded us a lot of opportunities that the stage show couldn't. We could go to real locations in Jonathan's life, but I could also you know, piggyback on the the incredible three-person show that knocked me flat when I was 21 years old. And by having the characters of Roger and Caressa singing back up on stage, Mm. I get to preserve some of Stephen Arimus's incredible harmonies that were devised uh, for that production.
1: As you were working through the adaptation, what was a really tough nut to crack? I mean, you knew what you could do with film and you knew what you you had dreamed of doing by expanding it cinematically, but what was something that was just really, you know, a bear?
0: Um, Well, you know, if, uh, if I could make anything to young filmmakers, you know, don't make a movie during, you know, one of the greatest pandemics of modern (laughs) history. Um, It was, you know, so many unforeseen challenges and I'm really grateful that Netflix kind of made our safety a a priority. Um, But, you know, we have this very elaborate, um, sequence uh, in a song called Sunday that is a love letter that Jonathan Larson wrote to his hero, Stephen Sondheim. And Jonathan only ever performed it as a one-man song. And I had the opportunity to create a choir um, and uh, just as big as the original Sunday in the Park with George. And for that end, I really hired Jonathan's dream choir. But because of COVID, it was very challenging to shoot that. You know, I had differing Actors at different levels of quarantine, not all of them could quarantine the 14 days required to be maskless on our set in October of 2020. So those actors, I would have to distance six feet from everyone else. Every shot is a tiled shot to make them look like they're all in the same place at the same time. Um, but, uh, you know, it was um, with, with the help of some additional shooting that we were allowed to do sort of post-vaccine in June of this year, um, we were able to, to pull it off.
1: So Jonathan was not just a great songwriter. He was a powerhouse on stage, a whole lot of energy, this huge voice. What were you looking for when you were casting the part, the part that ultimately went to Andrew Garfield?
0: I was looking for someone who lived and breathed theater. You can't just slot any old movie star into this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was lucky enough to see Andrew Garfield play the role of prior Walter uh, in the Tony Kushner's masterpiece, Angels in America, in London at the National. And, you know, that, that's a day. <laughs> you see part one <laughs> yeah. uh, at the matinee, you eat dinner in the theater, and you see part two. Um, and just, you know, reciting those lines in a monotone for eight hours as an endurance test. But Andrew somehow managed to have his, his chest cracked open the entire time. He played colors I'd never seen before. You could just tell he lives and breathes theater and that's his happy place. Uh, And that's, uh, you know, I didn't know if he could sing, but I I knew that he could um, embody the intensity uh, of Jonathan Larson and still have you be on his side every step of the way.
1: let's listen to a clip of Andrew Garfield in the role in the track Swimming, which takes place partly in an actual pool. And we'll talk about the filming of it after. Here's Andrew Garfield as Jonathan Larson and Tick, Tick, Boom. Kick, stretch, windmill arms See the hand, point the feet Wet hair, relax This guy's too slow 15, can I make it to 40? Too slow,
0: touch his heel, move. Answer my calls Red fin, stripe, 50 feet, 60 feet She looks like Susan Susan's beautiful Out, don't think out Out, let it out Keep the shoulder down Down easy, not too hard Find the movement, so hands no. shoulder no. elbows no. lower from the back yes,
1: lower 39, 40 centers, centers. that's Andrew Garfield from Tick tick boom <laughs> so Lynn tell me a little bit about filming that particular scene it's quite it's it's fantastic it's frenetic it's it's a lot of things. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's all those things. And again, like, this is where film can go that stage sometimes can't. This mm-hmm. is a song Jonathan used to perform in the original Boho Days monologue. And when you listen to it, as, as your listeners just did, it's this stream of consciousness, right? It's, mm-hmm. Okay, I guess he's talking about swimming, uh, bite the air, red stripe, 50 feet, 60 feet. Can I make it to 40? Uh, is he talking about laps or is he talking about his age? Um, and then our location scout, when we were, you know, doing pre-production for this movie, found the pool Jonathan used to swim in. And suddenly it all makes sense. Mm. There are these lines on the bottom of the pool made of tile. First of all, like just in full gratitude, it's untouched by time. It's a real pool at a rec center in the village. Um, And um, that red stripe is an actual racing stripe that's at the bottom of this pool. There are markers that say 30, 40, 50 across the bottom. It makes sense of this free associative lyric. Um, And it's about the most ineffable of things that I understand as a songwriter, which is when you need to get out of your own head and out of your own way to make room for inspiration. Mm -hmm. Um, It looks like (laughs) <laughs> procrastination to the outside world, but actually no, no, i 'm going to walk my dog i 'm actually like making room for this lyric to to get into my head or get into my heart um, and um and so we were so grateful to find that space and uh, you know, when I saw the pool for the first time and saw those lines uh, crossing the bottom of it, the first thing I thought was, This is staff paper. you know yeah. these are notes, notes belong here and so we we kind of were able to visualize what that moment feels like when the thunderbolt of musical inspiration hits you.
1: This is just a random weirdo question. You forget what a plummy British accent Andrew Garfield has. <laughs> I <just> was <watched> it. <laughs> no. It's just yeah. do, when, when you're filming, does he speak with Jonathan Larson's accent or does the, that gorgeous sort of I, I, uh, drool-worthy accent to come to out? That
0: version of, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I talked to that version of Andrew Garfield when I first sat down with him about the role. I didn't see him again <laughs> mm-hmm. until we wrapped production. He stays in it. Um, and and I, I have, I've encountered this with one other actor. I was lucky enough to be on, uh, on House. And Hugh Laurie, who, again, I think Hugh and Andrew are both secretly, like, from the Midwest and the (laughs) British accent is a put-on. It just makes them seem really impressive. Um, But, no, I I talked to Hugh about it once because, again, he stays in the American accent the whole time. And he said, it's like I'm driving a 16-wheel truck, and if I shift gears... And back, like, I don't know if I'll make it back up to speed in time. It's just easier to stay in it. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, he was Jonathan Larson when he was on set with us, and he stayed in that voice uh, pretty much the whole time. It's so wonderful to kind of meet the the British Andrew Garfield on this press tour.
1: You are listening to our conversation with Lin-Manuel Miranda about his film Tick, Tick, Boom. We'll have more with Lin as part of our last show of 2021. This is all of it. This is All of It. I'm Allison Stewart, and we'll finish up our conversation with Lin-Manuel Miranda about directing Tick, Tick, Boom, the movie musical about Jonathan Larson's life as a young composer in 1990s New York. Although Manuel is a native New Yorker and a musical savant, he is also a good study, and he did his homework about Larson's life and work. Let's listen. Access to archives, and you—people uh, who follow you on Twitter know—you shared a letter that Sondheim wrote to Jonathan Larson that says he deserves every support he can be given. In the same tweet, you wrote that you found enough unheard original music for our credits to say "score" by Jonathan Larson. Can you explain how having access to the archives influenced and shaped the and shaped the sound of the film?
0: Hundred percent. You know, uh, I think my. My first hire was a screenwriter, the great uh, Steven Levinson, who actually performed in a production of Tick Tick Boom when he was in college. Um, uh, I, uh, I think Brown. Um, and then mm-hmm. my second hire was uh, Jen Tepper, um, who um, I've known for years, um, and she's sort of a she's a Broadway historian. She's written books on the history of different Broadway theaters, and I knew she was a Jonathan Larson expert. She was working on her own project, um, an album of songs that. Of unheard Jonathan Larson music. And so um, I asked her and Stephen to come with me to the Library of Congress, um, and we just went through the folders. Um, uh, you know, and I was really hoping to make sure the whole score was by Jonathan Larson. I knew just from talking to Jennifer as like mutual fans uh, that there was so much stuff. And so it, the level of detail is, you know, we we found a folder called the jingles and it was jingles Jonathan Larson wrote uh, that no one ever <laughs> sort of bought from him. So there's a scene where Michael and John are driving in the car and you hear this kind of, public radio sounding news jingle, and it's actually a CNN jingle that he submitted that CNN uh, never purchased. Um, You know, so it's stuff as little as that to, um, you know, there's a song that's playing on the roof when he's talking to Susan, Mm. that is this kind of techno 80s freestyle song uh, that we we had re-recorded and covered by, uh, you know, the great Veronica Vasquez.
1: So you had access to his real-life friends and girlfriends, Susan and Michael. What is it that you needed to know from them or wanted to know from them?
0: Um, I guess what we wanted was sort of the, the granular stuff, like what is it like on a Sunday morning with John? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know his, his best friend, Matt O'Grady, uh, was the basis for Michael. His girlfriend at the time, Janet Charleston, was the basis for Susan. They're both still with us. Um, you know, Janet is still dancing. Um, Matt is, is, is still an executive. Um, and what was wonderful was that they, the details they g- gave us were really actable uh, for Andrew. You know, one of the things that, that Matt g- gifted us with was he had this enormous sense of occasion. Even when he didn't have money, he would throw a Christmas party and he would create a program where everyone who was invited to the dinner, he'd list what they accomplished that year. Um, He'd find ways to make people feel special and loved, even if he didn't have the means uh, to do so. And another sort of very touching detail is that when, you know, Matt was, you know, telling him about his, his HIV-positive status, John's the one who sprung into action and was sort of like, all right, what do we need to know? What, what support groups can we go to? Like, and, you know, it was, it, it really is sort of very mirrored in what we what we put on screen. Um, just someone who was, um, could, could have blinders on and could mm. be frustrated that the world wasn't recognizing his work, but also really made his community and his friends feel loved and included uh, whenever he could.
1: But I want to point out that it's not completely hagiography. I mean, he he kind of is not the best to his girlfriend at one point because he's so deeply into his art, um, and he's so deeply yeah. into what he wants wants to accomplish. Why was it important for you to make sure people understood that?
0: Yeah, well, I th- well, a couple of things. One, you know, talking to to Janet, you know there's also, we're also taking it from the perspective of one person and in mm-hmm. film you have an opportunity to address that balance a bit. Like who hears a ticking clock better than dancers do? Who, you know, their own instrument is their is their bodies. Um, and I remember her telling us like in the original draft, like his girlfriend wants to like move to an ashram like and like wants like a dishwasher. Like I didn't want any of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, to to actually address the greater balance and, like, the true statement that you don't have to go to New York to be an artist. Like, that's yeah. Jonathan's perspective. Um, that, that isn't right. That isn't the right answer for everybody. And it isn't my way or the highway. And then, you know, the other sort of dirty secret of living with an artist, and my wife can tell you, and the spouses of many other creatives can tell you, is the mic is always on. Um, and I think, you know, I, I'll never forget, I remember screening the... Um, the movie for my friend Dave Malloy, who's an incredible composer. He's a composer him. of uh, Natasha Pierre. And um, in that scene, um, they, they have this really knockdown, down drag-out fight, and it leads to what looks like a reconciliation, and they embrace, and then he starts playing the piano on her back. And, she, and as soon as that happened, Dave Malloy goes, oh, <laughs> this guttural groan of like, Lynn, you can't tell people that. <laughs> you know, the... The notion that when you, you know, Sondheim put it best in Sunday in the Park with George, like that however you live, there's a part of you always standing by, mapping out a sky, finishing a hat. And, you know, she turns to him and goes, oh, my God, you're thinking about how to turn this into a song, aren't you? Mm. And it's all fair game for us. And that is, that is a downside, a mm. real downside of living with an artist
1: spending so much time with Jonathan's work and given, as I said in the beginning, this sort of these parallel roads that you two were on and the way that you both had such an important role in changing the way people think about Broadway and actually who gets to be on Broadway and what they look like and what they sound like. Um, you know, he didn't really get to experience, he didn't get to experience the post-rent the phenomenon. You've had the Hamilton phenomenon, thinking about Jonathan, thinking about the work, living in it. Has it helped you think about what you've experienced any differently?
0: Absolutely. Um, you know, I think that, um, first of all, you know, I was I was working on another songwriting project while I was working on this movie. Uh, it's an animated film called Encanto that comes out next week. Mm-hmm. Um, the double duty of working on this film about, you know, this guy who all he wanted to do was have his music connect to the wider world, um, to have, um, you know, to, to write songs that spoke to this moment in time and that wanted, you know, popular culture to be in conversation with musical theater. Um, you know, you can't help but go back to your piano with gratitude uh, when you work on a story like that. You know, the fact that, the fact is it's, it's an impossible gulf for musical theater writers between what's in their head and finally, getting out on the stage because we need so many doulas, <laughs> we need mm. we need actors, we need directors, we need producers who can believe with us, believe in us. We need musicians. Um, it takes so many people to realize the thing that's burning inside us. And and Jonathan experienced that gulf so acutely. Um, and so you know, it just makes me so grateful that, that I get to live Jonathan's wildest dreams because I get to write music and it connects to the world. And Jonathan, you know. His work would do that, and I do believe we live in a Larson, a post-Larson Broadway. You know, he ended the conversation in terms of popular music and theater music, like you walk down the street next to Jagged Little Pill, next to Tina, next to Joe Iconis' Be More Chill, or Tom Kitts' Next to Normal, or Dave Malloy's Natasha Pierre, like it's his world, he was right. And the tragedy is he did not live to see um, how far-reaching his thesis would prove true.
1: That was our conversation with Lin-Manuel Miranda about Tick, Tick, Boom, a story about a New Yorker pursuing his dreams. On the way, we celebrate the 25th anniversary of the musical Rent after a quick break. Since WNYC's first broadcast in 1924, we've been dedicated to creating the kind of content we know the world needs. Since then, New York Public Radio's rigorous journalism has gone on to win a Peabody Award and a DuPont Columbia Award, among others. In addition to this award-winning reporting, your sponsorship also supports inspiring storytelling and extraordinary music that is free and accessible to all. To get in touch and find out more, visit sponsorship.wnyc.org.